Hello and welcome to another edition of the Stats of War podcast, a half-hour deep dive into the numbers behind the numbers, a weekly wandering through the statistical weeds of TCU athletics. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, resident stats wonk at Frogs of War, and this week I'm going to guide us through four numbers to talk about what's been going on in TCU sports. Let's go ahead and start with the numbers. 63, 4, 2, and 18.03. Our first number brings us to TCU basketball. 63 is the number of possessions in the 13-point win the Frogs scored in Austin this last Saturday. Now, this win was pretty substantial, uh, given that the Frogs have a tenuous bubble situation in the NCAA tournament, or in regards to the NCAA tournament, and a win at Texas is exactly what they needed. TCU played one of its slowest games of the season, Um, and in doing so, actually came away with one of its most solid wins. In fact, according to both Ken Palm and the Net, this is TCU's third best win of the season following both the win uh, against Iowa State at home and against Iowa State in Ames. So TCU is 115th in tempo, and they're 170th in offensive possession length. Now, tempo is kind of confusing when we talk about it as a stat because it does encompass a lot of stylistic variation. So you think about teams like Virginia, who are intentionally slow, um, and although that can come back to bite, uh, come back to bite them. Shout out to the UMBC uh, Terriers, Bulldogs, some kind of vague dog mascot I can't remember. But playing slow has uh, its it, its advantages and its disadvantages. But some teams intentionally play slow, and then some teams, and most teams these days are striving to play at a breakneck pace, um, and and fighting with each other to be on top of those pace rankings. Now, because there's so much stylistic variation, you have to think about pace as kind of this inverted U. So it's really, really good to be really, really slow. And it's really, really good to be really, really fast. Again, there's variation in that. There are fast teams who are bad. There are slow teams who are bad. But pushing out to the poles is where you want to be. That middle of the line is uh, a, a no man's land. And it is nowhere that any team with an identity is going to be um, in terms of how they how they play. That middle range where TCU finds right now finds himself right now is a result of TCU being able to impose its will when it's at full strength or against the right opponent, but also looking a little rudderless in a couple games where they faced elite defenses. So that 63 number was surprising because TCU and Jamie Dixon are more offensive-minded and so they are more focused on more possessions, faster pace of play. In fact, 63, 63 possessions was the seventh slowest game TCU's played all season, um, which I think matters a whole lot in terms of what TCU has been able to do because outside of that, TCU is four and seven in games with less than 70 possessions, five and seven if you include this Texas game. And they're 14 and five when the possessions get greater than 70. Now, of course, that's biased a little bit because virtually all of the non-conference games are going to be uh, higher possessions because TCU was able to impose its style when there's a talent imbalance. But it does show a big disparity in how TCU wants to play and how it's been forced to play in the Big 12. So a couple crushing losses in that in that slower pace range with um, the Oklahoma home loss being 67 possessions, the Oklahoma State loss being the Oklahoma State game in Stillwater, that loss being 65 possessions, 
Um, and you see a, the Baylor game where TCU got blown out was only 62 possessions. Uh, and so you see some offensive performances that have struggled in, but mostly you're going to find the, the stouter defenses down here. So both Texas Tech games, both Kansas State games, a really good Florida defense, uh, a zone Eastern Michigan team that Jamie Dixon, I believe, scheduled intentionally to simulate what TCU didn't know how to handle in um, Syracuse in the tournament last year. And then you have, um, you know, the the other Oklahoma State game, they're defensive-minded if you had to pick something. And uh, then your SMU game as well in that slow pace. So seeing that, TCU's really, really struggled against teams that are defensive-minded, and that shows that when the game slows down, TCU struggles, which makes that 63 number all the more interesting because TCU had a lead of 20 at one point in this game. They trailed 22 to 16 with six minutes left in the first half, had a minimum win probability of 11.8, and still came off and ran away with it. I think a 16 to 5 run turned into something like a 32 to 12 run. Um, And so TCU just pulled away, which is not what you would expect from A, the team that we've seen all season, B, a team with only seven scholarship players. C, a team on the road, or D, an offensive-heavy team playing a defensive-heavy team. So that was a really, really key win in terms of, one, TCU's resume for the tournament, but also, more specifically, with quality. You saw what the potential trio, quadro, quad, quartet? Quartet. We're going with quartet. With the what the quartet of Kendra Davis, Kevin Samuel, Quatnoy, and Desmond Bain can do when they're all playing together. And J.D. Miller and Alex Robinson had no small role in that game. I don't mean to write them out of the future, um, although they won't be here. I don't mean to write them out of the present, rather. But I will say that that game was uh, fascinating to see what TCU could be. Desmond Bain, with 34 points, was the MVP. He had the third-best line of the night, uh, according to Ken Palm. And then you have uh, just a lot of support around him. So when Desmond Bain is clicking, TCU's playing fast, Um or rather not fast, TCU's playing efficient. So they were shooting in the first five of the shot clock all night, which is great, and they were very aggressive in breaking the press. And so when TCU is aggressive, it doesn't matter if the other team slows it down, they can still play their game on offense, which leads to great things, I think, in the next um, upcoming season with Desmond Bain being being the figurehead at the front of this team. All right, let's shift gears here. Like I say every week, let's shift gears. Uh, the next number is four, which is the number of lineups TCU baseball has used in the last four games. On Monday at the Frogs of War site, Jamie had his Monday morning manager post. That's fun to say, Monday morning manager post up where he discussed TCU's lineup troubles. I recommend you go read it. This this post, or rather this segment, will not overlap with that so much as it'll be a companion to that. Because I think Jamie covers a lot of the bases about the lineup logjam the Frogs are facing and how um, a lot of decent play but little amazing or outstanding play has created some uh, trouble with how to allocate resources best. It's it's a good problem to have to have a lot of talent, um, but also you'd like for your starters to separate themselves and decide who they are. And, and TCU baseball hasn't done that. So go read Jamie's piece up on the site. It'll, it'll still be in the first little display by the time you hear this podcast. So easily accessible, but I want to talk about lineups because I think lineup construction is an underrated facet of the game. So there's a lot of consternation in the major leagues about how much can analytics actually tweak 
um, and how important is it to you know optimize the right lineup and have each player take the same amount of steps um, moving here and there and all these little things. But I think in college, it's an entirely different reality. So I think the principles that I'll talk about in lineup construction hold the same, but I think lineup construction is exponentially more important uh, in college, and it's more crucial to college success than it is to major league success, if only for the reason that these college players are obviously less talented on the aggregate than major league players, and they're also less developed. So many of them are great at one thing and good at a couple of things. And so highlighting what guys are great at can really give you, can really pay more dividends in terms of optimization and run creation than it can in the major leagues. So I will kind of frame this, um, I'll spoil a little bit. Only the first six spots matter in a lineup because seven through nine are really just put your best hitter out of uh, out of who's left, just put your best hitter seven, the next best hitter eight, the next best hitter nine. Um, we talked about in the Slack a little bit today, pitchers hitting eight, and how fun that is. One, that doesn't matter in college baseball, and two, as fun as it is, as fun as it is, and I grew up a St. Louis Cardinals fan, and so I've seen Tony La Russa do this weirdness and um, swear by it all the time. In reality, the small marginal benefit it offers batting this pitcher eighth really doesn't matter. It kind of comes out in the wash with that pitcher being in more situations where you could score more runs if there was a better hitter there. So really, seven, eight, nine don't matter. We're going to talk about the first six possessions in the lineup, and I'm going to frame it as kind of what the old school says and what the new school or the modern analytics says. I am stealing most of this directly from a book called The Book, Playing the Percentages in Baseball. If you like baseball analytics, you've probably already read it or probably seen all of it as blog posts on the internet. It's uh, on the internet. It's by Tom Tango and Michael Lickman and, ooh, a man named Dolphin. Uh, that's not a joke. His last name, I believe, is Dolphin. So it's by those three gentlemen who are all really sharp, sharp computer scientists, data analysts, guys, baseball fans who have done some great work uh, kind of breaking down what numbers look like. So we're going to walk through that and talk specifically about how TCU might adjust their roster to optimize. So first, we'll start with the leadoff. Um, The traditional view of the leadoff is a speedy guy who can get on base and can be there to knock runs or get get knocked in when your big power bats come up later. Um, And so that's honestly not too crazy different than the new analytics school, except for the fact that OBP is king over speed. So you want a fast guy, sure, but you'd rather have OBP. Also, notice that the first batter is the one that's going to get the most at-bats, just in terms of sequencing and progression. The first batter at the beginning of the game is going to get the most at-bats. And so you don't want to be wasting those that volume, right? You want to prioritize OBP. Um the leadoff hitter has has runners only about 36% of the time, according to some research in this, in playing the percentages in baseball. Uh, and so you don't want to waste power here. You don't want to waste doubles and home runs that could drive in runs later. You want high OBP, um, gets on base, can get drawn in. Also, you want low slugging. Uh, and so TCU, fortunately, has the prototypical modern-day analytics leadoff man in Porter Brown. He's ideal for this. He has a 422 OBP. He's got 11 walks, and he's last on the team 
in slugging among people who have played substantial at bats. Um, with he's he's slugging 358. So he's not hitting the ball far. He is just hitting the ball and getting on base. He's bunted a couple times and is great at that role. And so TCU is optimizing with the lineup with the leadoff spot just because Porter Brown does play that role of high OBP but low slugging. So next we come to the two-hitter. And the two-hitter is where we see the real big divergence between the old-school script and the modern analytics script. So the old-school script says... We want to get a guy on base, and then you want a bat control guy here at the second spot. You want somebody who can really bunt or really poke one through the right side or get that runner over to second. So the emphasis on moving that runner to second. Um, That's really dumb because, one, bunting just decreases your chances of getting a hit and getting another runner on base. Even if you're successful at bunting, you're worse off in terms of game states by increasing the number of outs you have. So there's a very limited window where bunting is a good idea. And it's kind of comical knowing what we know now that most of baseball history was built on bunting with the second hitter. Because the second hitter gets more and more meaningful at bats than anyone on the roster. So, or anyone else in the lineup. So first, leadoff is going to get the most at bats, just like I said, but this two hitter is going to come on come to the plate with runners on base um, a lot more. So you want this to be a high OBP. You want this to be your best hitter. He's going to have more meaningful at bats. He's going to have more opportunity to drive in runs. He's going to get a lot of at bats. And so uh, for TCU, I think the ideal person right now, given the stats that we have um, is Jake Gunther. Um, He has five doubles and his OBP is better than Josh Watson by 100 points. Now, I know there's issues with like clubhouse and who wants to bat where and who feels, but I'm leaving all of that aside. I'm just holding constant, looking straight at the numbers, not making any value judgments about anyone or any chemistry calls. I'm just saying Jake Gunther is hitting the ball, he's hitting line drives, and he's getting on base, and he deserves the two spot if we're following this script of you want your best hitter getting the most at bats there. Uh, Josh Watson has has Josh Watson has typically been in that two spot for most of the season, and um, that's fine. That's defensible. Uh, he does have a two twenty eight batting average, and so that is kind of tricky. You'd expect that to level out, and I mean, really, this is worth a segue here. I'm I'm doing an exercise that's not really grounded in reality because we have to realize with such a small sample size that the on-base percentage and the batting average numbers that we're seeing are just random single draws from a, a whole distribution. And so, and so, of course, you're going to make a lineup and think, here's what I know about Josh Watson coming into the season. And yeah, I know that he struggled, but also here's what I've seen in practice. Here's what I've seen in the fall. Here's what I've seen in his entire career. And I know that he's probably a better hitter than a 228 average. And so Josh Watson at second is likely more of a function of Schlossnagel recognizing Watson on average in, in in distribution of possible outcomes is the best hitter on the team, um, or it should be being the senior leader. So Watson second is defensible, but again, suboptimal. So uh, first off, Porter, uh, Porter Brown, second, Jake Gunther. Then we come to the third hitter. The third hitter is actually less important than the fourth hitter, um, just because it comes up to bat with runners on base a lot less in terms of game situation, I think it's worth noting that um, 
So in the book, in playing the percentages of baseball, they go through and analyze games over and over and over again. So this isn't predictive modeling. This is descriptive analysis of what kind of game states do each lineup spot find themselves in most often, and how does that kind of contribute to who should bat there? So the three-hitter is actually less important than the fourth. Um, The old-school cleanup man is your prototypical Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, uh, you're big kind of going to strike out a lot. Yeah. But when he hits the ball, he is going to hit the ball, um, far and going to hit the ball hard. Um, and again, the idea of the cleanup man who's high, high strikeout, uh, you kind of want that person batting fifth or third, just given the situations and fourth, you really want your second best hitter. You want the power guy. So looking at three and, or so looking at two and four, you want to emphasize power in the four spot and you want your best pure hitter in that two spot. Uh, especially important is that you don't ground in double place. That fourth, um, that fourth spot, you want him hitting fly balls. You want him hitting line drives. You do not want him grounding into double plays and wasting runners. So Isola is second on the team and on base percentage. He has three home runs in 12 games. He has nine strikeouts, but he's got the hot bat and has no grounded a double place. So I think Isola is the prototypical cleanup hitter for TCU right now. Now we come to the fifth and the third spot. Uh, Josh Watson goes here in the fifth spot. The fifth isn't more important than the third. Um, This is kind of your third best hitter. Again, you want basically your four best hitters to be in leadoff, two hitter, four, five, and three, just kind of the way things shake out. Three is really going to come up to bat in the bottom of the first. Um, that's that's almost like a wasted at bat um, just because they get a lot of two out, no man on situations. And so you want to you want to save that those better hitters for more situationally appropriate spots in the lineup. Um, so I put Watson here at number five. He has six doubles. 443 OBP, and despite a low average, he's a leader, and he obviously can knock and run. Knock and run. So, like I was saying with the distribution, this is obviously um, we know what Josh Watson is. We know that he's not a 228 average, and um, he avoids he avoids grounds and ground and double play. He avoids strikeouts. He puts the ball in play, which is what you want here out of this five hitter. It looks like right now that just in terms of metrics, Wolf should be the three hitter. He's got a three. 33 average. He's third on the team. He's fourth in OBP. Oh, the dog barked. Sorry. Apologies. Um, he's he's third in third on the team in average, fourth in OBP. He has high strikeouts, but he has low slugging. Um, and so Oviedo's power may translate better. And with him coming back, that might be a more natural fit at the three. But right now, just looking at the numbers, I think Watson, or excuse me, um, Wolf is your number three hitter. Six is the last spot that really matters because here's where speed is optimized. The number six hitter is the guy that's going to get on base and then do the most damage with his speed when he has lesser hitters behind him. So if you think about this, the fastest guy on your team who can get on base, you know, a lot of the time, he'll be able to do more damage with his speed when he's not batting in front of guys who are going to hit home runs. So if you have bad hitters, and balls in play, speed comes into a lot of factors there and stealing bases. So really, six is kind of that other natural spot for Porter Brown. But because he has such a high OBP, you'd put him up there. If 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 Porter Brown's OBP came down, you know, 100 points, something crazy 
heaven forbid, you'd put him at that six spot because the speed can do so much damage with those lesser hitters in seven through nine. The problem with TCU's lineup is that everyone who has stolen bases is already allocated in our lineup. Uh, so maybe you put Henry here because he's stolen three bases and hasn't gotten caught once, but it seems like that speed is going to be negligible when we compare it to optimizing our power. So to recap, Porter Brown, Jake Gunther, Wolf, Isola, Josh Watson, and then maybe Henry there. Also, it'd be worth it just to put Oviedo's, Oviedo's bat at six and get him a little bit higher in the spot in the lineup. But again, just tinkering, just looking at what's the most important thing to success and how can we optimize? Again, we've got to remember that optimization here in the major leagues is a matter of a couple runs a season. But in college, like I've mentioned before, it, it, it can really bring out the best in these one-dimensional players. So it'll be interesting to see how um, Schlossnagel kind of t- tinkers and if he settles somewhere it, as his you know priors about what guys are coming into the season change or if he continues to tinker and let guys figure out who they are on the field. So um, that's probably a good spot to take a little break. I know that's past halfway, but I'll take a break there and then we'll finish up our last two numbers quickly. All right, and we're back, and we'll finish with a shorter segment here because I know I'm coming up against my promised half hour uh, here. We're going to finish with two segments. So the first is the number two, which really refers to a chi-square test. And the reason I bring up a chi-square test is because we kind of have, uh, harking back to Jamie's article on Monday on the Frogs of War site about lineup problems, we do kind of have a question about catchers and who should be catching and who should be at third base and who should be DHing. And that brought up a discussion in my head where I wanted to talk about catcher defense because college has absolutely no grasp of catcher defense. You could measure putouts and errors and wild pitches and maybe caught stealings and get some measure, but also all of those are going to be so small especially when you're comparing two catchers that are getting equal playing time, that it's really, really hard to um, formulate any kind of meaningful comparison there. Even in the major leagues, catcher defense is really elusive. There has been a concept relatively recently with the advent of kind of this stat cast and and high-level, very granular data called pitch framing. And because every single major league baseball pitch has a location and a speed and a velocity – Um, what we can do is we can look at catcher A and catcher B and say how many strikes that were in this location did catcher A get called that catcher B had called balls. So we look at how does a catcher kind of do the soft skill of framing, of moving his body, of receiving the ball correctly to make it so that he doesn't, he gets marginal strikes and marginal balls. So we are literally years away from that in college baseball just because the data is so hard to come by. But I think there's a way that we can compare catchers. And so here's my next project for the week. Um, I probably should have said earlier that these are kind of forward thinking. But I think what I would like to do is a chi-square test for expected outcomes. So a chi-square test is um, basically something that allows you to look at expected versus observed values. And so the, the, the two hypotheses, well, the hypotheses that we'd be testing would be the null hypothesis of Humphreys and Isola are equal defenders, that the difference between them is negligible. And the 
Alternative hypothesis would be Humphreys and Isola are different catchers defensively. And if that were true, we could make a judgment about which one of them was better. And so I think the way to do that is to kind of create this this chi-square matrix um, of four cells. And so we would have observed strikes, observed balls, observed balls that should have been strikes, and observed strikes that should have been balls. And again, that's limiting because we don't have the pitch-by-pitch pitch data, but I think you could back it out by basically looking at the number of strikes each starting pitcher threw with each catcher, or pitchers in general with for TCU threw with each catcher, and how many they threw on average. That might be correlated across those two, but I think that could give you some measure of, is there statistical difference in the number of strikes and balls and the number of walks and strikeouts between when a pitcher, or between when Isola is behind the plate or when Humphreys is behind the plate. This is really nebulous and it's really hard, and it's not as clean cut as that fit measure that I talked about a couple weeks ago because there's so much that a catcher controls that is context dependent and reactionary and soft and unmeasured. So catcher defense is really, really hard. But I think a chi square test could at least give us some insight into is one of these catchers performing better or are pitchers performing better with one of these catchers? Again, hard to control for other variables, but kind of fun. All right, in my last segment here, I want to go to my 18.03 number. That 18.03 number is TCU's production in my Cobb-Douglas model of modeling offensive output. So basically, I took this very simple, you see it in, you know, macro one kind of Cobb-Douglas production function where companies put in inputs and they get out an output. So they put in two inputs, usually labor and capital. They're both raised to the exponent of some technology, and then you get an output. And so I just simply said, all right, the inputs are the number of runs and the number of passes that a team chooses. And the technologies are their running success rate and their passing success rate. And then their output is what they got. And so I can do two things with that. One, I can solve for everyone's current output and rank them. TCU was 18.03 on offense, which is 81st, which makes me feel really good about this model because it was very much in line with their S&P ranking uh, in terms of offense. And so just a nice barometer, another analytic system says, yeah, TCU is about in the middle. Um, there's probably some marginal comparisons to make and see where there are differences. But for now, just as a baseline kind of calibration, that's exciting. The second thing I can do with that then is I can use this Cobb-Douglas solution to find the optimal running and passing for each team and figure out, okay, if they were optimizing, if they were choosing the optimal run-pass mix given their technologies, how good could they have been? And so you see uh, some actually pretty shocking changes in that um, Georgia was almost a full point lower than their optimal. Um, App State was 0.6. Michigan was 0.48 uh, of a point lower than their optimal. Purdue was 0.43. Um, and then you saw some teams that were kind of notable really good teams. Uh, so Toledo, for instance, doesn't have a lot of talent, but gets a lot out of that talent. Um, you saw Temple and Arkansas State, coaches that, that are well-renowned and programs that are well-renowned for getting a lot out of it. Also, you saw teams like Alabama, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Washington, all being well within their 
almost having a zero difference between their optimal and their potential because they are optimizing. So I think that does give us some evidence to suggest that um, teams are choosing well, or good teams are choosing well, but bad teams could actually affect some strategy things. So I know some of you who have you know read my work during the season and followed me know how much I despise the kind of cheap pseudo option that TCU has at some times. And that's not, that's not a fault of anything more than, you know, injury. And it's hard to practice and plan and all this stuff happening at the same time. I don't mean to sound as harsh as I sounded there, but, um, I've even yelled about the triple option just to give something different and novel and something that could execute actually with deception. But, um, I kind of went through this entire exercise, saw all these results and then went to TCU and feel a little humbled according to this model, because, TCU's optimal production was actually 18.01, or excuse me, 18.31. And so their optimal production and their actual production were virtually the same, which is a limited statement because execution and success rate are obviously tied together. And so there's some optimization in determining that success rate. But for now, for this model, um, it looks like TCU's offensive staff was optimizing given their constraints. So that post is a huge behemoth up on Frogs of War um, about strategy and and a a simple model for strategy. Go read that. Go let me know if I'm crazy in the comments. I think there's a lot of interesting um, learning that can be done by just taking models from other places and applying them to college football and saying, hmm, what does this model say about college football? And it helps us kind of formalize our thinking. So that is going to be the end of the podcast for today. Um, We've talked about TCU playing uh, slow and efficient in a win over Texas. We talked about lineup construction for TCU baseball and how that might optimize and change some run scoring opportunities for the Frogs. We talked about a chi-square test for catcher defense. And then finally, I rambled about a Cobb Douglas production function for offense in college football. That's going to be the show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Um, You can find my work and a lot of other great work by some talented writers up on the Frogs of War site. You can uh, message me on Twitter at Parker underscore F-O-W. I probably need to log into that. You can also tweet at Frogs of War and it'll find its way to me. Um, That's it for today. Thanks for listening and look forward to talking to you next time. Be well and go Frogs.